Welcome to the Calvary Young Adults Podcast. We exist to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. Here's today's sermon. All righty, grab a seat if you would. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, you want to grab that, we'll be in Colossians chapter one tonight. Colossians, about halfway through the New Testament. Uh, we'll be in Colossians one as we kick off a new teaching series tonight. Uh, and as we kick off this new teaching series, we'll be working through uh, Calvary's six core values. Uh, I want to introduce you to a quote that I've shared with many of you before, but I think this is important for us. That'll kind of frame up a little bit of the way we think, not just about tonight, but about the next six weeks. Uh, so theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard said these words. He says, there's no avoiding the fact that we live at the mercy of our ideas. And here's what I need you to know. Whether you are a Christian or not, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or you're not sure what to do with Jesus, you live at the mercy of your ideas. Which means somewhere along the way, you started to pick up ideas and beliefs and worldviews and things about how you see the world. And based on those ideas that you have internalized, you actually begin to live in a certain way. So there are a number of beliefs, even some we picked up on childhood, that you know, even though you don't know. And so I'm going to run through some of them. I'm going to leave the last word blank. If you know it, we're going to play a game tonight. We don't always do this, but here we go. We'll have some fun. This is the level of fun we will get to, all right? All right, phrase number one, the grass is always greener on the other, right? Somewhere along the way, you actually picked up this belief, and it's an important perspective that everywhere you are, the other side always looks better. But then you get to the other side, and you actually realize the grass is greener because it's over like the septic tank, right? Like that's, it's not actually that great, well, like, like number two, let's try this one. Um, don't put all your eggs in one. Like this is the lesson of diversification. Like somewhere along the way, you learn that if you put all your eggs in one basket, it might be great, but it's probably not. Number three, actions speak louder than? <laughs> you learned as a kid that people, including your parents, your family, your teachers, your coaches can say a lot of things, but their actions speak much louder. Number three, four, I don't know where we are. Don't judge a book by its. Right, like you learn quickly that someone can look the part, they can look like they have it all together, but they can actually be a fraud. Next one, an apple a day keeps the doctor. I have no idea what that one means. All right, next. The early bird gets the, right, like somewhere along the way, you picked up the idea, even if you are not an early riser, that the first people to get somewhere typically get the best stuff, right? And so whether that's getting up early or getting into the market early or whatever it is, the early bird gets the worm. And I could go on and on, right? Like of these little phrases that's actually started to shape the way you think about the world. Like these aren't just cute things we learn. They're actually things we internalize and begin to believe because little phrases we learn shape how we live. And that's the whole point of this series, that little phrases we learn shape how we live. And when you learn these phrases and start to internalize these phrases, they become part of you even when you're not thinking. So like the last time you met someone who was fake, you didn't think, oh, don't judge a book by its cover. You just started to internalize the fact that things don't always appear, uh, appear the way they actually are. And so tonight, as we kick off this new teaching series on Calvary's six core values, there are six phrases over the next six weeks that we want you to internalize. That we as the leadership, the elders of Calvary Community Church, teaching our church, guiding us into this next decade, want these six phrases to be something you internalize in such a way that you're not even thinking about it. It just becomes part of who you are. And here are the six phrases. You'll see them on the, on the screen. Number one, it's all about Jesus. Number two, God's people delight in God's word. Number three, that life change happens in relationship. Number four, that found people find people. Number five, that saved people serve people. And number six, that grateful people are giving people. You'll see these words all around our church put up on the walls. Why? Because little phrases we learn shape 
how we live. And tonight we're going to start with the first one, and it's the one you'll see right up there above some of your heads, that it's all about Jesus. So I want to teach on that tonight. I want to help you understand what that means. And most importantly, I want to help you understand how this shapes the way you live. Colossians chapter 1, if you have your Bible open. If not, we'll have it on the screen, but you can have your Bible open, your phone, however you want to do it. Colossians 1, 15, here's what it says. Paul writes these words. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. So one of the profound tensions that exists as a person of faith, and this is true for any person of faith, but it's particularly true as we think about biblical Christianity. One of the profound tensions when it comes to faith is this real tension that God is invisible, right? God chooses for whatever reason in his sovereignty to remain invisible to our senses. Even in the scriptures, there's these moments where people desire to see God. Moses wants to see God. And he says, you can only see my back. Like you cannot see me face to face and live. This is the burden and this is the tension of scripture. And yet this burden that God creates, this mystery that God lives as an invisible being actually creates a problem for us. And that problem is a question. And here's the question. If we cannot see God, what is he like? If we cannot see God, what is he like? And all throughout human history, people have tried to answer the question, okay, there is this invisible God who created all things, who formed all things, and yet we can't see him. So what is he like? And most people, when you ask them, what is God like? They will immediately go to some kind of philosophy. Like even if they don't have the right words to use, they will go to some kind of philosophical premise. Like God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. Or he's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. Or he's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at once. They'll automatically go to some kind of philosophical argument that he's everlasting, that he's the God who's always been. And those are interesting and true theological claims. But here's what I need you to know about the New Testament. When the New Testament tries to answer the question, what is God like? It does not point to a philosophy. It points to a person. And that person is the person of Jesus. So when it says that he is the image of the invisible God, we see the same thing echoed in Hebrews chapter one, verse three. I'll have it on the screen. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets in many times and in various ways. Like in other words, all throughout human history, God has been trying to reveal and communicate to his people who he is and what he's like. He's been trying to answer this question, what is God like? But then it says this, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. This is Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Like in other words, the New Testament's answer to the question, what is God actually like? Like if we can't see God, what is he like? It doesn't point to a philosophy. It doesn't point to a systematic theology. It points to a person. The answer to that question is he is like Jesus. Like if you want to know what God's like, don't guess, don't speculate, don't think about it. Look to Jesus because when you see Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews, he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. You know that word there in the Greek language in the book of Hebrews is actually the idea of how a face would be imprinted onto a coin. In the Roman Empire, just like ours, coins would have people's faces on them. And the idea here is you want to see the face of God? You want to know who God is actually like? You look to Jesus. And in looking to Jesus, not a philosophy, but a person, you understand what God is like. That's why we say here it's all about Jesus. You want to know what God's like? You want to know this God we're singing to and what he's all about? He is like Jesus it goes on this way in verse 15. It declares that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now this can create all sorts of questions inside of us. 
Because if you grew up in church and, and you understood that, that God is three persons, everlasting, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this starts to come up with all kinds of questions. Because if he's firstborn, that means at some point he was born or at some point he was created. But here's what I'm going to contend. I want to contend that actually the very next verse is going to show that he does not believe that Jesus is a created being. And the firstborn thing here is actually not meant to say that God created Jesus. Actually, one of the things I want to point out is that in the Bible, the word firstborn can refer to chronology or priority. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that in the New Testament, firstborn sometimes refers to the literal biological firstborn son. But sometimes it refers to priority because in the ancient world, the firstborn child, particularly the firstborn son, was more important than any of the other children. Raise your hand if you were a firstborn child. Firstborn children in the room, in New Testament times, in the Bible times, you were special. And now, I don't know. But listen, in the Bible, Israel is called the firstborn of the nations. Now, Israel wasn't the first nation, not even close to the first nation. And yet it's called the firstborn by God. Why? Not because of chronology, but because of priority. David, King David, is called the firstborn. But if you know the story of David, he's actually the lastborn. He's the youngest. And yet he's called the firstborn. Why? Not because of chronology, but because of priority. And when Jesus is called the firstborn over all of creation, it is not because he was chronologically the first one to be born. It is because it is assigning a priority to him that it is Jesus above all things, Jesus above all of creation, Jesus above all else. And here's why this matters for us. It matters for your life because once Jesus and you recognize that he is the priority, he is the one who comes first, everything else in your life orients around this. Author Stephen Covey says this famous phrase. He says, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And here's what happens in so many of our lives. We take the main thing and we make it something else and we make it less than the main thing. And we start to get distracted by side quests over here or little things over here. And we're not even sure why we're doing it, but we're getting distracted by things that are important, but not ultimate. And sometimes even by things that aren't important. Like I want you to imagine um, I'm in a baseball game and I join a baseball team. Um, and in baseball, there's only one objective to the game. And if you're like, have fun and be a good sport, get out. All right. Because that is not, the goal is to win the game. You play to win the game, right? And so in baseball, you have one objective that's to win the game, score more runs than the other team. So I want you to imagine I join a baseball team and the baseball team is really excited about the color of their cleats and the kind of Gatorade they have in the dugout, and the walk-up music for every batter, and like that's what they get excited about, and they lose like 13-0 every single game, but they're like, did you see that walk-up music? It was amazing. Like, my cleats are so cool. Here's what you would say. It's not that none of those things matter. It's that the ultimate point isn't your cleats or the Gatorade or your walk-up music. The ultimate point is winning the game. And if I was on that team, I would say to them, or you would say to me, that you haven't kept the main thing the main thing. And here's why this matters for us as a church. Well, here's why we hammer this phrase that it's all about Jesus. Because it is very, very, very easy for churches to make something other than Jesus the main thing. Like, let me talk to you about a few of those things tonight. Let me remind you, church growth isn't the main thing. Us reaching as many people as possible and having as many people as possible come to Calvary Community Church is not the main thing. Church growth is a good thing, but it is not the main thing. Doctrinal purity is not the main thing. So like the main thing here is not that all of us would believe all the right doctrines and have everything, all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed. Working toward holiness is not the main thing. 
Like I have a desire that every single person who's part of Calvary would be striving toward holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would become more like Jesus. But listen, you becoming holy is not the main thing. Fighting for justice is not the main thing. I believe we as believers have an obligation that we should care about justice in our world and that we should fight and strive toward it. It's just not the main thing. Listen, studying the Bible isn't the main thing. If you've ever heard me preach, I'm the Bible guy. Go read your Bible, study the Bible, open the Bible, memorize the Bible. But listen, that's not the main thing. Serving the poor isn't the main thing. We as a church have a heart and a desire to serve the poor here in the Caneo Valley, in our region and all around the world, but that is not the main thing. Changing society isn't the main thing. Our main goal here as a church isn't to change society or to change laws or to change the culture around us. Building community isn't the main thing. As much as we want you to deeply connect in small groups and relationships, it is not the main thing. Can we just be abundantly clear on this tonight? Jesus is the main thing. He's always been the main thing. He will always be the main thing. And anything less than Jesus is a thing not worthy of being the main thing. Amen? Amen. That's what we believe here. What we believe here is that it's all about Jesus. When it says that he is the firstborn of all creation, it is trying to give a priority to your life. And it's not that none of those things matter. They do. But if any of those things take the ultimate place in your life, if they become the priority, they will be out of whack and you will lose the plot of what Jesus has called us to. Verse 16 says this, it says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This, this text right here is one of the most stunning texts about Jesus you could ever read. Like this is one of those things that you could just sit in and meditate on for ages and ages and ages. I'll tell you why this is one of my favorite texts. This isn't exactly where we'll go. Uh, but from time to time, I think the problems in my life are overwhelming. Like how am I gonna have enough money or am I gonna make it? Or how's my family gonna be? Is everything gonna be okay? What about the United States of America? Are things falling apart in this world? What's gonna happen here? What's gonna happen there? And then I go read this and I read the sentence that says he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And when it says all things in the Greek language, it means everything, all things, meaning the trillions and trillions and trillions of galaxies that we will never make it to because that's how big the universe is. Jesus just goes, I'm holding it in my hands. I got it. It's that old song, right? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got it all. And I'm like, but Jesus, could you possibly solve this tiny little problem in my life? And it's like the beautiful thing about our Jesus is he's got it all. He's holding it all together. There's not a single atom in all of the universe that Jesus doesn't know exactly where it is by his command. See, this is the power and the glory and the majesty and the sovereignty of our Jesus. And so often what happens is we think of God and we think of him as powerful. And then we think of Jesus and we're like, yeah, Jesus is a little like this. Like, let me show you this photo here. This is how a lot of you view Jesus. And I call this the sweet baby lamb Jesus, right? Like for you, Jesus is sweet baby lamb Jesus. And it is true that in his incarnation, the scriptures say he had no beauty to attract us to him, that he was a man of humility, a man of suffering. Jesus says of himself, he says, I am humble and lowly in heart. So in every way, this picture of Jesus, probably not this exact picture of Jesus, but something like it, where he's approachable, where you look at him, you'd want to be around him. This is absolutely the picture of Jesus. And yet I want you to contrast sweet baby lamb Jesus. I want to show you that Colossians verse again. In him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, or authority. That talks about all of the spiritual realm. 
All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Don't you dare underestimate my Jesus. Don't you dare underestimate the power that Jesus has in this world and in your life, the power that Jesus has to change circumstances and to govern the world as he sees fit. When we say that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it's because of this kind of authority. If Jesus didn't have this kind of authority, he didn't king of anything. But here's the beautiful thing about our God. The beautiful thing about our God is that Jesus is seen as this powerful and overwhelmingly creative God who created the entire cosmos and holds it together. And this brings us really into conflict um, with any view of Jesus that sees him as anything less than this. Like, let me just make this claim tonight that the most decisive question in human history is who is Jesus of Nazareth? Because Here's the truth about the paragraph we just read. That paragraph is either entirely true or entirely bogus. There's no middle ground here. And yet what people have done is they've looked throughout Jesus in human history and they've said, okay, he's a failed Messiah or a human prophet born of a virgin or created being, or he's Jesus is Michael the archangel, or he's one of many gods, or he's a wise teacher, or he's a martyred rabbi from the first century. But here's what we as Christians say. We believe that Jesus is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. We believe that Jesus is the Lord, the sovereign King, the second member of the Godhead, the creator of all things, who sustains all things and holds them together. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. That is the claim he makes about himself. And he leaves no room for any other kind of claim. This is where I love um, apologist C.S. Lewis writes these words. He says, I'm trying here. He writes this in Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That's Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. And here's one of the most brilliant sentences he writes. He said he would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else some madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any of this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open for us. He closes this way. He says, now it seems obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequentially, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This is the invitation for you. You do not have to accept Jesus as who he says he is. You can reject him. You can walk away from this place. You can want nothing to do with this place and nothing to do with Jesus. But let us not stumble for some idea that a man who claimed that he holds the entire universe together is just a nice moral teacher. If he's lying about it, he's not a good moral teacher. If he's crazy, he's not a good moral teacher. He is Lord, he is liar, or he is lunatic. And here in this church, we say, Jesus is Lord. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. It goes on this way in verse 18. It says that he is the head of the body, the church. So, so you see here that the claim about Jesus is in all of his sovereignty and all of his power and all of his creative might. He is the head of something. And what's so fascinating to me is it doesn't say he's the head of some local government or some country or some empire, but rather he is the head of something special and that is his church. He's the head of the church, the beginning of the church, and the king of the church. And this is the kind of church we're building here at Calvary. Listen, if some of you are new or newer to us, I just want to be abundantly clear about who we are as a church. 
We are a church that talks about Jesus, sings about Jesus, points people to Jesus. This is the center of our church. He is the head of our church. He is the one who governs our church. Like I want you to hear this um, paragraph. And this was written and approved by the elders of Calvary Community Church, the governing elder board of our church who oversees all of the ministry that happens here. Hear what the elders here say about the kind of church we wanna be. They say in the 2030 vision, they say, we we see a church that is filled with disciples who are committing to making much of Jesus. In a world that wants to define and divide us in countless ways, we will maintain our unity through keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We will reject the call to give our ultimate loyalty to anyone other than the crucified and risen son of God. We will talk about Jesus, sing about Jesus, pray in the name of Jesus, study the teachings of Jesus and share the good news of Jesus all the days of our lives. This is the kind of church we intend to be. And any indication that we would go this way or that way, that we would kind of bow to another, that we would give our loyalty to anyone or anything other than Jesus is a losing errand here. This is who we are as a church. And this might sound like duh to you. Like sometimes I say this and people are like, duh, of course it's all about Jesus. But here's what I want you to know, that the great challenge in every generation of the church is to keep it all about Jesus. This is the great challenge in every generation of the church. Because in every generation of the church, there is a temptation, there's a draw, there's a call from culture to make the church about something other than Jesus, to make the church about something else. In our age, one of the great calls on the church is that the church would ultimately become about your politics of choice. And so people say the church needs to take a stand when they actually mean the church needs to take my stand. They say the church needs to speak up about politics when they mean the church needs to speak up about my preferred politics. See, the invitation for the church in this age, because the rival God of Jesus is politics and political power, is to orient our church toward being a church that is all about politics and all about raising up political power in this world. And here's what I want you to know. If that's the church you're looking to, we will disappoint you. We will disappoint you because we got our guy. He's not up for election. His name is Jesus. He rose from the dead. He's seated in heaven. That's our church. That's what we're about. Politics is not going to draw us away. We're not gonna be a people who divide and talk about and make our whole world about politics or politicians or policy choices. I wanna go on to say there's another thing that can distract so many Christians, maybe even you, is that you actually make church about your preferences. And so what can really quickly happen at a church is you make the church all about your preferences. So you decide on a church based on your preferences or you like or dislike a church based on your preferences. And so you come in, you're like, I love the first song. Second song wasn't my jam. Third song, I can't even stand anymore. And you're like here critiquing the worship. Like you're here critiquing the sermon, critiquing everything. You're just kind of like a critic. You're like a food critic who's never actually cooked anything, right? You're just like, I don't like that. And that's not very good. When the point is not to come here and say everything's perfect. And the point is not to criticize. The point is to come into this place and make it about Jesus. But far too many Christians make church about their preference. And so they look for a church that they're comfortable at. And comfortable means they agree with me on everything. They do everything the way I want them to do. Everyone dresses like me, talks like me, looks like me, thinks like me, sings like me, and behaves like me. And the ultimate goal of church is not to meet your comfort. It's not to meet your preferences. You know all the wild things about Calvary? I'm in senior leadership here at Calvary. And there are things about our church I do not prefer. There are songs we sing, I'm like, I don't like this one at all right? There are things we do. I'm like, why don't we do that? Um, There are things that go on here that would not be the case if this church was all about me. 
But one of the greatest blessings is that this church is called Calvary Community Church, not Brian Howard Incorporated, right? And if that's true for me, I know that's true for you. I know sometimes we give a sermon, you're like, I don't like that one. I know we sing songs, you're like, I don't care for that one. You want one of the best things? You can come in, like it, not like it. What's it all about? It's all about Jesus. That's the invitation. Again, the temptation of the church in every generation is to make it about your preferences, your wants, your desires. And what do we want to be here? We want to be a people who above all, you will leave this place agreeing, disagreeing, liking, not liking, having different ways you do it, that's fine. But if you leave this place saying, you know what, that was the church that pointed me to Jesus, then we at the end have accomplished our mission. It goes on this way in the back half of 18. It says he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So, so for the New Testament and for the follower of Jesus, there's this great confidence we have, and it's this one, that he is the firstborn from among the dead. Like in other words, the great hope in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ on the third day in the tomb rose, rose literally, bodily, physically, eternally, and gloriously from the grave. Like it wasn't a metaphor. It's not that Jesus' spirit floated up to heaven. It's not that his disciples still believed in all the things he taught. And so they made up a story about Jesus rising from the dead. No, he literally rose up from the dead. He did it physically, like his actual body got up out of the ground. It was glorious. It was eternal. This was a permanent resurrection from the dead. And here's what the Bible says. When the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn among the dead, it means that there are more people that are gonna rise from the dead. And you know who those people are? That's us. The people who are gonna rise from the dead is those of us who trust in him. That at the return of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead and life eternal is yours to have. So when it says that Jesus was the firstborn from among the dead, you go because I'm coming after him. I'm gonna rise up from the graves in the same way, physically, literally, gloriously, eternally. I am going to rise. That is what we build our faith on. That is what we have confidence in. The confidence you should have in Jesus should ultimately come from his resurrection from the dead. Like, let me put it to you this way. Um, maybe I missed something here, but let me, let me put it to you this way. Um, so on Sunday, um, I'm gonna get the opportunity to go down for the first time uh, to SoFi Stadium. Do we have a picture of SoFi Stadium we can put up there? Um, not, oh, yay, there it is. Um, and the Rams are playing. And you gotta know, I don't love the Rams. I love the San Francisco 49ers. This was my childhood team. I'm going down to watch the Niner game this Sunday. Uh, I'm gonna head down, watch the Niners, beat the Rams. It's gonna be a wonderful experience. Um, and watching SoFi Stadium come together has been one of the most fascinating journeys over the last couple of years. Because if you didn't notice this, if you ever flown in or out of LAX, like as you flew in and out, you could watch the construction actually happening at SoFi. So check out this construction photo here. Obviously this is kind of early in the process. But one of the things I got fascinated with is like, how in the world do you build a building? Like, where do you start? You're like, start there, right? Like, what do you do? And the answer to building something as magnificent as SoFi Stadium is you build the foundation. Then this blew my mind. What blew my mind is the idea that the foundation of SoFi Stadium, they had to dig into the ground up to 100 feet into the ground. This blew my mind. And 100 feet means nothing to us, but let's say this roof is about, it's probably less than this, but let's say it's about 20 feet up in the air. You would stack five rooms on top of this, and that's how deep they had to go into the ground to drill in to build a foundation for SoFi Stadium. And I just thought about that as I was seeing the stadium getting built. Like, you have to build this massive foundation to sit this thing on top of. And here's the question I want to ask you. What foundation does your faith rest on? What's the foundation of your faith? What's the reason you're a Christian? What's the reason you follow after Jesus? What's your life built on? What's the foundation? And you know what the sad truth is? For far too many, the answer is my feelings. 
So you feel close to God or it feels like Christianity is true or, or it feels like Jesus rose from the dead and so your feelings are actually your foundation. But if your feeling is your foundation, when the feeling goes away, your foundation's gone. See, the problem with your feelings is they lie to you. The problem with your feelings is they're fickle. They come and they go. Some mornings, don't you just wake up kind of hating everyone in the world? You have no reason for it. You have no explanation for it. You just kind of wake up and you're not sure. For some of you, it's not your feelings because you're like, feelings are bad, but facts are good. So your actual foundation for your faith is your intellect. And so you think you have good arguments for God. And so because you think you're smart, that's why you believe in God. But you know the problem with the I'm smart, therefore I'm right plan is? There's always someone smarter than you. You need to realize this. There's always someone who has more brain power, more horsepower going up there than you do. And so if your whole faith is built on how smart you are, you will encounter someone smarter than you who disagrees and it will crumble is it built on your feelings or your intellect? Is it built on your church? Like, I actually want to let you know that like believing in me and therefore believing in Jesus is a dangerous game because I am a man. I can fall. I can crumble. I can let you down. I can disappoint you in many ways. And if you say, well, my pastor believes, therefore I believe it's a dangerous game. For some of you, it's your feelings, your intellect, your church, your leaders. For some of you, it's your parents. You kind of grew up in a Christian house. So you never actually question what you built your faith on. For some of you, it's your circumstances. Like I've seen far too many people build their faith on the fact that life is going really well and they're making it. They got a career, they got a girlfriend, they got a wife, they got kids, they got everything going, everything's going well. So they praise God and their faith is actually built on the foundation of good circumstances in their life. But all of those things crumble. Listen, let me remind you tonight that the resurrection of Jesus is the only foundation strong enough to build a life of faith. It's the resurrection of Jesus. You build everything on that. You stake everything on that. It is the resurrection of the Son of God that allows us to stand as faith. That is the foundation that goes hundreds of feet into the ground, that erects this giant building. It is the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus. I was thinking about it this way. Uh, back in 2008, I studied abroad in London um, and I was hanging out with a bunch of different people and some of them were Christians and some of them weren't. And, and one night we did what you do in London. We went out to a pub and we were out at this pub um, and, 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 and people were having, you know, one, two, five, six, a lot of beers. Um, and so they're drinking these beers and eventually one of the guys who was not a believer comes up to me and he's had a few beers and he starts to talk to me about Christianity, which was one of those most fascinating conversations I've ever had with this individual. Um, and I'm, I'm listening to him talk and he's sharing and he asked me a question I'll actually never forget. He goes, you actually really believe this stuff, but he didn't say the word stuff. He said other words. Um, and, and he said, you really believe this? I was like, I really do. And he goes, what would make you not believe it? And it was a great question. And that's my question for you. What would make you not believe in Jesus? What would make you abandon your faith in Jesus? And for far too many people, the answer is, well, when I stop feeling it, or when I just hear an argument that I can't get out of my mind, or when a church lets me down, or a pastor lets me down, or my circumstances change, or tragedy comes. But you know what my answer to him was? My answer to him was the same answer that Paul gives in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You know the only thing that would make me disbelieve in Jesus? It's if they found his body in a grave somewhere in the Middle East. That's the only thing. If Jesus is still in the ground, we should all find something different to do with our Thursday nights. But if that body's not in that grave, there's nothing better than for us to be here and to live a life of faith built on the foundation of the resurrection of the Son of God. This is the invitation for us to root and build our faith in something that cannot be shaken, that is not inside of us, and that is outside of us objectively that God has done in the person of Jesus. Here's the final verse we'll look at tonight, verse 19 and 20. 
It says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So it says all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And then it says through him, he's going to reconcile. Now, reconcile actually presupposes some things that are true. One of the images that the New Testament gives for how we and God get right is the image of reconciliation. And the image of reconciliation assumes that there has been a break in relationship. And the idea that's built into the idea of reconciliation is that you have broken the relationship with God. And the way I always put it is that God says, I've created you. I've given you a life to live. Go live this way. And all of us looked at God and said, forget you, God. I'm going my own direction. I'm doing my own thing. We shattered the relationship with God. We are unreconciled to God. And yet what does this say? That he reconciles us to himself. God is reconciling us to himself. In other words, he's repairing the relationship that has been broken. And the point of the gospel is that Jesus is the one who reconciles and repairs this broken relationship between us and God. I want you to think of it this way. Have you ever had a relationship, uh, and I don't even mean a romantic one, but usually this happens in romantic ones, where you say something and the other person smiles and says they're good, but you don't think they're telling the truth. That ever happened to you? Just me. Okay, just me. All right. So there's a moment where you say something and you think maybe you said something wrong. You're like, oh, I'm sorry about that. But then you're actually not sure if you're good with the person. Like if you've ever been in a romantic relationship of any kind with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you say something, you hurt their feelings, and they say the two words you never want to hear. I'm fine, right? And that means they're not fine and you're not sure are you and I good. And you can have this with your mom. You can have this with your sister. You can have this with your best friend. You can have this with anyone. And you're wondering, am I good? And when you're wondering, am I good with this person? What does that create inside of you? Does it create peace? Never. It creates anxiety and fear. Because here I am going, man, I don't know if I'm good with this person. They say we're good, but are we really good? They say we're doing fine, but are we really fine? I'm not really sure how the relationship is right now. And it creates anxiety and it creates fear within us. And here's what I want you to know. The human condition, the moment we went, forget you, God, I'm going in my own direction, is anxiety and fear over whether God and I are good. And here's the good news of the gospel. And here's what the person of Jesus means to us. You'll see here that it says he, re- no, go back, go back. It says he reconciles all things to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven. And he says he makes peace. Like he takes our anxiety, he takes our fear, he takes our worry over whether God and I are good. And he makes peace, how? Through his blood, shed on the cross. Through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, God the Father puts the punishment, the wrath of God upon Jesus rather than us so that Jesus absorbs the penalty willingly, lovingly, decidedly for our sin and he cries out, it is finished, meaning you don't have to wonder about you and God anymore. You don't have to wonder whether you two are good. You don't have to sit around stressing and being anxious and fearful over whether you and God are on good terms. Like, let me put it to you two ways tonight. Number one, if you want to know that you and God are on good terms, do not look down to your emotions and behavior. This is what far too many people do. They go, am I good with God? Are him and I in a good relationship? And so you look to your emotions. You ask questions like, well, do I feel close to God? When I was singing tonight, did I feel something inside of me? Did I feel like God and I were good? They look down to their emotions. Or even worse, they look down to their behavior. They go, how could I be good with God? I looked at porn last night. How could I be good with God? I lied to my employer. 
How could I be good with God after what I did to her? How could I be good with God after I haven't read my Bible, I haven't prayed, I haven't been to church? How could I be good with God? They look down to their own behavior. And here's what you need to know. If you look down to your own behavior or your own emotion, you will always live in insecurity and fear over whether you and God are good. I just need to speak that over someone tonight. Some of you have been looking to your own self, looking at your emotion, looking at your behavior, looking at your life, looking down at yourself to ask, answer the question, are God and I good? Here's what I need you to know. If you want to know whether you and God are good, don't look down to your emotion and behavior. If you want to know if you and God are on good terms, look up to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. That's what you look to. You don't look down toward yourself. You look out and up toward Jesus, toward his death on the cross where he cried out, it's finished. He bled and died for your sins and toward the resurrection that said that check cashed and your salvation is secure. That's how we know we're on good terms with God. We look outside of ourselves to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, one of the ways we do that as a church is through taking communion together as brothers and sisters in Christ who have been blood-bought by Jesus and brought into the family of God, one of the ways we are reminded to look externally to ourselves is we take communion as Christians. Now, here's what's gonna happen in this room tonight. We have a number of ushers in the back right now who are gonna begin to pass out communion all throughout this room. The communion is gonna come in the form of these little cups. You'll see the bread on one side. Bread is a generous word. It's something resembling bread. Um, and then you'll see the juice here and I ask you to just hold this as it's passed. The invitation for you, if you know Jesus, if you believe that he has died for your sins and rose from the dead for your salvation, if you confess that he is Lord and King of your life, I invite you to take communion with us tonight. If you're not sure what you believe or you're sure you don't believe, the invitation for you simply is to let this basket pass. There's no judgment here. We're not mad, but this is a thing we do to remember Jesus. And the last thing we wanna do is make a hypocrite of you tonight. And then here's the final person I want to speak to. I wonder if there's some of you who have been wandering from God. You've not been walking with God. You don't know Jesus and the power of his resurrection in your life. You don't know the forgiveness of sins, but maybe you're back to church in a long time and you've been wandering from him or you've never been part of church. And here's what I want to invite you toward. Perhaps tonight, the way you call upon the name of the Lord and ask him that he would rescue and save you is by taking communion this evening that you would take this little piece of bread and that you would remember that Jesus Christ died on the sins or died on the cross for your sins and for your salvation. That you would drink this cup and be reminded that the blood of Jesus was shed, that you might have a right relationship with God. See, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. He said, do this to remember that I was the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead for your salvation. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. A covenant is the way God and us relate. The new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Later on, the apostle Paul will say, every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so here's the invitation tonight. If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus, if you've called on his name and you're following after him, you take communion tonight to remind yourself that your salvation was not earned by yourself. It was earned outside of yourself 2,000 years ago by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if tonight, for the first time, you are putting your faith and trust in Jesus, you take communion, not because you've earned salvation, not because you've merited it on your own, not because you're a good boy or a good girl, but because you recognize I've fallen short in my sin. I am a great sinner, but hallelujah. I have a great savior. 
His name is Jesus. And at this church, it's all about him. Let's go ahead and take this bread. And I wanna remind you that this is the body of Christ broken for you. Let's take together. Let's take the cup. You remember the blood of Jesus spilled on our behalf, spilled for the forgiveness of sins. And when this cup touches your lips tonight, may it be a reminder that your sin is actually fully and finally forgiven in Jesus. Not just some of it, not just part, but the whole. All of it was forgiven on the cross so that you have nothing more to pay for because Jesus paid it all. Let's take and drink in remembrance of Christ. If tonight's the night you put your faith and trust in Jesus for the first time, or if tonight you're interested in learning more about who Jesus is, we would love to talk to you after the service on the patio. We'll be out there and have a conversation with you about who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. And for the rest of us, may that little phrase, it's all about Jesus, shape how we live, shape how we see God, shape how we see ourselves, and may it stir us to worship tonight. Would you stand with me and we're gonna pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word and we thank you for Jesus. God, may he be honored in this place. May he be glorified in this place. And may this be a place that always lifts his name high above all else. Father, we ask for anyone in this room who is far from Jesus, who doesn't know his mercy, doesn't know his grace, doesn't know his forgiveness and kindness, that tonight they would come to a saving relationship with him. And God, I ask for the men and women who know you and trust you and follow you, that they would be reminded that you are the God who reconciled us through your blood shed on the cross. Father, may that grace and mercy be here tonight. May it be all about Jesus as we sing. We pray in Christ's name and all God's people said. Thank you for listening to this message. I hope it was a blessing to you and want to invite you to join us on Thursday nights for service at 7 p.m. To connect with us, follow us on Instagram at calvya underscore or on our website, calvarywestlake.org.